0: Hi friends, welcome to the very first episode of the Making Room on the Pew podcast. This is a podcast for the church misfits and outcasts, the people, the gatekeepers of the faith love to keep out. Here we talk about building a fully inclusive church with the people who are actually out there in the world doing the work. Join us to learn more about experiences and perspectives different from your own while we create the church we are all longing for. Today on the podcast, we have Shannon Martin. I was first introduced to Shannon through our mutual friend, Amanda, on Twitter, and as soon as I saw Shannon's witty, justice-focused Twitter feed, I knew I wanted to know her better. I was on the launch team for her latest book out this past year, The Ministry of Ordinary Places, Waking Up to God's Goodness Around You, and it is one I have been recommending like crazy, so we are, of course, going to talk about that today. Shannon is a writer and speaker who found her voice in the country and her story in the city. Shannon began blogging at Flower Patch Farm Girl and then released her first book, Falling Free, Rescued from the Life I Always Wanted, a few years later. She and her jail chaplain husband, Corey, have four funny children who came to them across oceans and rivers, and they now all live as grateful neighbors in Goshen, Indiana. So today we talk about neighboring the problem with the American penal system and being church misfits, uh, which both Shannon and myself consider ourselves. Please help me welcome Shannon Martin to the Making Room on the Pew podcast.
1: Hi, Shannon. Thanks so much for being here on the podcast today.
2: Yes, thank you for having me.
1: Of course, you know, I was um, thinking the other day about how we, quote-unquote, met each other online. Um, and I realized it's actually because of our mutual friend, Amanda Carpenter. Is um, that what it was? Had, yeah. So okay. earlier this year, she tweeted out a question, and then she tagged a bunch of people for their responses. Okay. And you and I were both tagged. And I remember following you on Twitter because I was thinking – if Amanda trusts Shannon, I trust Shannon. Right, I know um, <laughs> how that
2: works. I'm sure I probably did the same thing. That's probably exactly what it was.
1: Yes, so um, I, I have loved being able to kind of follow with you on social media. Um, and then I also got to be on the launch team for the Ministry of Ordinary Places, which is your book yes. that just came out
2: earlier. Thank
1: you um, so earlier. much for that. Yeah, oh my gosh, it was such a blast.
2: It was um, fun.
1: Yeah, getting to be a a part of that. Um, So I am just so thankful um, that you're here and I'm so excited for our conversation. Um, That being said, I did give you a little uh, like professional bio at the top of the show um, just based on your like about me page online. Um, But I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and just kind of introduce yourself um, to people who maybe have not connected with you before.
2: Yeah, sure. So my name is Shannon Martin, and my family lives in the way northern part of Indiana, so up close to Michigan. We live in a city called Goshen, Um, and my husband, Corey, is the chaplain of our county jail, and then we have four kids. Our oldest is 24, and he's out of the house now, and then we have three still at home. Calvin is 13, Ruby is 12, and Silas is 10. I always have to think about that for a second. Um, and so all of our kiddos came to us through adoption. So that's just something sort of unique about the way our family was built. And we live as neighbors here in our lower income, you know, very ordinary, but very extremely special to us neighborhood here in Goshen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I love that you kind of put in there, like all our our kids came through adoption, um, because you have such a wide range, like 24 and
2: 10. Uh, Right. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) Well, and it's the, the, the most interesting thing is that the 24 year old came to us most recently. So he was like our big surprise. You know how a lot of families have like their surprise, like child, (laughs) he was like he was a literal big surprise he showed up into our lives into our family i should say when he was 19 years old so he's he's been a part of our family for five years now and he's a very special addition to our family
1: yes oh i love that Um, so on your website you describe yourself as a writer who found your voice in the country and your story in the city. Um, I so uh, resonate with that. I grew up in uh, the middle of nowhere, Ohio, on a family farm. Okay. And now I live in New Jersey, just south of New York City.
2: Oh my goodness. Um, so, okay, so I, I like, hear you. <laughs> you're doing like the real deal city city life. Like we live in this small little city that barely counts as a city. <laughs> and you're up there like just rolling in New York. That's awesome. I have to ask, where did you grow up in Ohio? Cause that's where I grew up. Really? Yeah. I
1: grew up in, um, you may have, nobody has ever heard of it. Um, right.
2: Asheville.
1: Um, Asheville.
2: Like, okay.
1: Yeah. It's, um, maybe like 20 minutes South of Columbus.
2: Okay. So I grew up yeah. like an hour and a half West of Columbus directly West. So we we were there in the same quadrant of the state. (laughs) Yeah, I did not know you were from Ohio.
1: I guess I just kind of assumed you were from Indiana, that's where you are now.
2: We were just in Ohio for Thanksgiving. My family is all still over there, so it's about four hours or so from where we live now. It's not too far, Um, but yeah, I mean, a big part of my heart still belongs to Ohio for sure.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Ohio has a way of of doing that to you. For sure that's true <laughs> um yeah so I'm, I'm wondering if you would talk um a little bit to us about finding your voice in the country and your story um in the city
2: yeah i'd love to you know my husband and i we i'm trying to to think through the timeline um we had been married for i don't know how many years um we had lived for a time in Washington, D.C., and that's where we both kind of started our... We both had very politically oriented jobs. My husband worked for a congressman on Capitol Hill, and I worked mm. for a think tank just off of the hill. So we, we only lived in D.C. for about a year, and then my husband was was promoted to a different position in the congressional office, and we moved back to Indiana and then you know a handful of years after that we ended up buying our dream farmhouse and it was just you know it was everything that we ever wanted it was kind of the thing that we had been working towards so you know we had lived in the apartment and then we lived in dc and then we bought kind of a starter home and you know at that point we believed that we were going to live there forever i mean it was it was just it was my my picture perfect dream on six acres. And, you know, at that time we had Calvin and Ruby. So we had two little babies. Um, And, you know, life was just, it was, it was difficult in the way that every stage of life has its own kind of, you know, I, I don't know that there's ever been a stage of life where I can look back and say like, Oh, that was totally easy. You know, there's always something going on. And so transitioning into being the mom of these two, Little tiny babies. That was challenging in some ways, but for the most part, our life at that time was very peaceful and it was very comfortable. Um, it was very secure, and and that's when I really began writing. So that's when I started my blog, and um, yeah, just just really started writing, kind of finding my voice as a writer and, and discovering that I that's something that I enjoyed. What's happening? <laughs> yep that's that's my cat she's, okay, for I'm gonna, hear like, her? oh my gosh <laughs> I thought it was yeah, like no, an audio glitch and then I'm like it might be a cat that's hysterical no, yep
1: yeah, she's just angry that I'm not paying attention to her sorry that about is that the
2: best audio bomb I've ever heard and I hope it stays <laughs> in the show <laughs> It's usually like the, my train or somebody knocks on my door or something. I love that it was a cat. So right. anyway, yeah. I'll just keep talking if you want me to. <laughs> yeah, go right ahead. Okay. Um, so yeah, I would say it was during that time on our farm that I, that I really started to believe that maybe I was a writer. And I started to just, you know, back then it was kind of the heyday of blogging. And I was blogging, I mean, a ridiculous amount probably easily five times a week, I was publishing a blog post, which is hysterical to me now. But what I didn't realize, I mean, I thought it was just fun. I had no um, real intention, especially early on that I would ever publish a book. I, I was just practicing and I didn't quite know that that's what I was doing. So at the point that we then, we had a, a major shift in our life. We had only been on the farm for maybe three years and we started to feel our hearts really being pulled into the idea of what does it really look like to love our neighbor. Um, You know, we had both grown up in the church and we had heard those Bible verses a thousand times, but we were suddenly hearing them, you know, with kind of a, a new pair of ears and a new set of eyes and, you know, starting to understand that this is very important to the heart of God that we really love the people around us and that we that we particularly love people at the margins or people who don't have enough love in their lives. And And what we discovered at that point was that we just really didn't know people that fit that bill. We didn't know the poor. We didn't know. Um, we didn't know very many people all who didn't really kind of look and live and believe just like we did. And so we started to to have the sense that maybe we would be moving, we didn't quite know where. And so that was kind of a long process. And I write about all of that quite a bit in my first book, Falling Free, just kind of that process from getting us from the farm to our little neighborhood here in Goshen. And so at the point that we landed in Goshen, I suddenly realized like, okay, you know, I definitely know I'm a writer now. I definitely know that I would love to write a book one day. And and then I sort of realized that this was my story. This was the story I had to tell.
1: Yeah. Um, I like that you brought up loving your neighbor. Um, because honestly, when I think Shannon Martin, I think loving your neighbor, just, I mean, everything I see on social media, you're always talking about how to get to know your neighbors, how to better love your neighbors. Um, it seems like a huge value in the life of your family and also like in your own, uh, personal faith practice.
2: Um,
1: but I, I also real, uh, realize and recognize that that type of fierce commitment to your community takes intention and a ton of effort. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you would tell us um, a little bit more about how you got to this place of radically loving your neighbors mm-hmm. and your community. I mean, was there a specific event or was it just this gradual sliding into this way yeah, of
2: life? Yeah, I like the way you put that. I think when we moved, when we knew that we were moving to Goshen, and so we've been here now for six years, so I'll just kind of put that out there. It's, it's not new anymore, and so, you know, I just spoke to a group of women last night who just read The Ministry of Ordinary Places as a book club, and they were saying, you know, you're just, you know, how do you do this? And you just, it just seems so normal to you, and it seems so natural, and I kept saying, I've been, we've been here for six years. You know, like, there's just a thing that no matter what we're doing, it takes time and it takes practice. And, you know, you mess up along the way and and we still do, but we've learned a lot. You know, we've been it, talking to me now versus talking to me in that first year would, would be a pretty different experience. So, you know, we knew that we were moving to this neighborhood. Um, we knew that we weren't moving here to plant a church or to start a, a Bible study or to start a food bank or, you know, we weren't here to do a thing. Um, even though, quite honestly, in the beginning, I, I really wished that we were here to do a thing. And I tried to like make things, you know, I tried to kind of dream up like, oh, we could do this or maybe we could do this. I felt like since we, since we really upended our life in a lot of ways, and now we were here i felt like we needed to be doing a thing and that was hard for me to to learn to just sit down and to to start just being intentional like you said i mean so it started very slowly and and that's what what we kind of sensed the lord was telling us was just you know you're just going to you're just going to be a neighbor you're just going to live like normal people and learn what it means to really love your neighbors. And, and what we know now is that what that means is that we had to start, um, we had to start paying attention and we had to start listening. We had to stop talking so much. We had to reevaluate our ideas and our tendency to think that our ideas were the right ideas. Um, You know, we had a lot that we needed to unlearn. And we also just really had to get used to having people around us. I mean, we moved from a, from an environment on our farm where we we were back this long lane. We were surrounded by, you know, soybean fields. I mean, it was just, we didn't have a, we weren't used to having a lot of people really in our daily orbit. And so that was really different as soon as we, as soon as we got here to the neighborhood. So about it, I don't know, maybe with sometime within that first year of being here was when Robert Officially, you know, became our son and became part of our family. And he really, you know, he grew up. He had a pretty rough upbringing. And when when we adopted him, he was actually in jail, and then ended up being in prison for a time. And then when he was released from prison, he moved into our home here. Um, but you know, just even learning to learning to learning what it meant to really love him and to honor him as a person, you know, as our son and as, as somebody who had lived a very different life than we had lived. And, you know, we just, we found ourselves kind of bombarded with opportunities to really begin to understand people who, whose experiences did not mirror our own. And so that was just, a, it was just a journey and we're still on that journey in a lot of ways. I mean, I think we've, 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 our comfort level is way different than it was in the beginning. And this is very much you know, our new normal, but I, I just don't know that you ever fully arrive at like, okay, now I'm, you know, now I'm excellent at loving my neighbor. You know, I think it's just always going to mm-hmm. be a work in, in process. And it's always going to be kind of, um, you know, bumping up a little bit against, you know, our own personalities and the fact that most of my family um, are introverts and, you know, there, there are all of these things at play, but we just keep We discover over and over that our lives are made better by the people around us and by really investing in their lives by really loving them and particularly by being loved by them. I mean, that's just something that has blown us away and, you know, taken us by surprise. And it's just, it's just a gift. It's a gift to be actively, um, you know, involved on a daily basis in the lives of people who have really struggled to survive in a lot of ways and to be near that resilience and to be near that generosity and to be near that joy. And I mean, it's just, it's been a real gift to us. It's, it's changed our lives. It's changed almost everything about our lives.
1: Yeah. um, I like that you talk about how it takes time. Um, I I think that's important to let people know. Um, I mean, I know when I moved to New Jersey, I had lived in Ohio for my entire life, and, like, um, my, gr- my grandfather was on the, uh, the board of trustees, like, everybody knew me, like, I could say, oh, right. I'm a Welch, and right. everyone knew me, right, like, I did not have to work for that community because my family had already done that for me,
2: Yeah.
1: and then moving here, I mean, I've only been here for about a year and a half, and okay. still... Um, like I'm still working on building that yeah. community. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I like that you highlight that that like it it's going to take time. Like that's kind of the right. point of this. Um, and I like that you mention in there, we have to love people and get to know people for who they are, not yeah. for who we want them to be. Right.
2: Well, um, because I think, and, and you might relate to this, I think at the point that I arrived in my neighborhood and in my new city, and maybe not quite to the extent that you're in now, you, know, you moved to somewhere sort of blind and you don't know anyone. Corey knew a few people around town just from previous jobs. We didn't move far like you did, but I didn't really know anybody in the city. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we moved here not knowing anybody. And I found that anonymity kind of amazing <laughs> in some ways, but it's also, you know, it's got its downsides too. I mean, we went through some real loneliness for a while. Um, and it's just, it's it's incredibly slow work, but you you arrive at a place and and, you know, I like what you said, like really just, taking people for exactly who they are. That's what I wanted from people. I wanted people who were just getting to know me. Like, you know, it gave me the freedom in some ways to just anything that I had sort of picked up along the way of like, you know, this is this is how you operate. You know, I had grown up in very small towns, like you're, you're talking about, where everybody knew everybody, everybody went to school with each other. You know, there were all these connections and I started to see how that had kind of changed me. In small ways away from who I really may have been. And so when I kind of got this fresh start, it was a, you know, there was an element of being able to say, this is me. And one of the things I know about me is that I don't particularly care about fussing over my appearance every day. That was something I had kind of learned to do. In sort of my past life, like if you're going to be out in public, then you've got to, you know, you've got to look a certain way, or you've got to at least try, or I don't know. Like that's a silly example, but I just realized here, like nobody knows me here. Nobody's judging, um, you know, if I'm showing up to the coffee shop with bedhead and a ball cap. Nobody cares, and I, I don't know. It just I found it to be honestly pretty freeing.
1: Yeah. Yep. I I totally agree. Um, with all of that as well. Um, So while we're here talking about um, learning to love people uh, for who they are, I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone if I say that the current political and cultural climate here in America right now does not necessarily inspire love. Um, There's just you know, there's, there's so much hate and fear everywhere. I mean, I'm sure both you and I and everyone listening can think of a time fairly recently we were either the subject of, or at the very least a witness to an unkind or hateful comment um, or action. So um, I'm wondering what compels you to continue loving so openly and so freely when this is the state of our nation. Um, and really quite frankly, the, the whole world.
2: Yeah. I think, I, I think everything you're saying right now is really the, the starting point of this book that, you know, my second book that I just wrote. So the one that's just newly out, I think, I think what I realized was I was coming to a place, um, experiencing everything that you just mentioned, you know, the polarization, um, the fracture, the, you know, honestly, just, just taking a look around me and feeling like I don't even know what's happening. I don't even know what's happening anymore. I don't, I certainly don't know how to fix this. Um, it's depressing and it's easy to give in to that fear. It's easy to give in to retreat and just kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, I'm just one person and this is a disaster and there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I think I found myself, maybe for the first time ever, really feeling weighed down by the just the the political and the religious. I mean, just everything kind of, you know, came together and just, I don't know, a snowball of despair. (laughs) Um, So at the point that I started really feeling that over and over and over what I what I noticed was the only way around that feeling of just brokenness was to take my head out of the clouds where all of these problems just loomed so large and so out of control and you know just terrible and to really get down to street level, you know, just in my ordinary life, in my everyday self, in my, you know, this is, this is my tiny, tiny speck of a corner of the world. But if I can get really intentional right here, um, for one thing, a lot of the bigger problems that we see, you know, kind of in the news cycles, which we cannot avoid, and that's part of the problem, too. But a lot of those bigger problems were represented in some small way or in some big way right where I live. And so, you know, all these things that I felt like, well, this is terrible, but there's nothing I can do about it. Um, you know, you, you find a neighbor who, for example, um, you know, I don't know, I'm just we're, in our neighborhood, we're surrounded by immigrants. And so, you know, the immigration conversation became very real to us very quickly. And so rather than feeling like, okay, you know, this is just, it's just the actual worst, which it is. um, But just, you know, taking that opportunity to just be near some of our immigrant, immigrant friends or to, to go to coffee with one of them and just listen um, to to hang out in their kitchens, to have them over for dinner, to, you know, whatever the situation might be, to make it about these real life relationships was always the answer. And so that's when I started to feel like, okay, that's, that's the way forward. That's the way through this. If each of us did that with real intention, like really started to pay attention and look around, not up with our, you know, not up in the clouds where we can't really affect a lot of change. But right here in our personal lives, if we build lasting, enduring, committed relationships with the people around us, especially the people who are struggling or suffering in some way, that makes the world better. You know, making the world better for one person really does make the world better. And if a lot of us are doing that, then the world gets a lot better.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that we, um, end up paralyzed a lot by, um, everything that we see. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking, but, uh, quite frankly, easier, um, to stay paralyzed rather than try, um, to do something. And especially for those of us who feel like, um, we're, you know, the fixers, we, we can't fix this, but we can love. That's Um, right. And we can make a difference, you know, right. Uh, where we are, um, like you were talking about with, um, the people in you, your community who are immigrants, um, at where I work, um, I don't want to say the majority, but uh, a large portion of my coworkers are also immigrants, and mm. I can't really fix anything for them, but right. I, I can learn from them, I can sit there, right. and I can listen to how hard it is to one of my coworkers who can't get her boyfriend into the country because of what's happening in DC right now um you know if nothing else i can i can
2: listen and learn and love and um i love that that you yeah mm -hmm. that's the thing i mean i think i think you're right we can't fix very much i mean i'm i'm constantly confronted with the fact that it, and, and you know, I think that's the point. I think we're not supposed to be going around necessarily fixing things, but I think that's part of our human nature to want to alleviate the suffering of the people around us. I think that's a really beautiful thing about humanity when we let it be. Um, but what you're saying is right. We really We really can't fix a lot of this, but choosing who we are standing with, you know, standing with our immigrant friends, being loved by them, um, letting our lives be changed by their presence in our life. I mean, just really being with them is a really powerful thing. I mean, I think that's what that's what changes hearts. That's what, you know, I, I think over time and I think I think all of neighboring is very slow, slow work. Um but I think that's okay. You know, I think we can just, we don't have to feel pressure to, you know, to build these really deep and meaningful, you know, kind of heart level friendships overnight. That's just, that's not the way it has happened for us. Um, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but, you know, to to just commit to taking those those small steps and really being intentional with who we are standing with. And that's what what we did kind of, you know, to just stay with this thread of kind of immigration that we've landed on. A lot of, a lot of those feelings of just overwhelm and sadness were kind of translated in, in a few really meaningful conversations where all we could do was say, listen, we are with you and we are here for you and we will do whatever we need to do, you know, moving forward as you walk through what's a really scary experience for a lot of the, you know, the people around us. So we couldn't do anything other than to just say, we're just going to be here. We're going to be right here. And we want you to know that. And so even just that conversation ended up being just a really meaningful Brick in the building of our relationship, I think, and so I think that's that's what it is. That's what neighboring is: is just taking the time to kind of stack those bricks.
1: Yeah, I love um, I love how you put that um, because you're right, neighboring it's building. You know, it's not something instant; it is something gradual, um, and it takes a lot of hard work. um, But it's amazing. You know, quite frankly, for lack of a better word. Right. Yeah. You know, it's just, um, it's amazing. Um, Okay. So I I want to talk about um, your latest book, The Ministry of Ordinary Places, Waking Up to God's Goodness Around You. Um, It came out earlier this year and it is just uh, phenomenal. I mean, honestly, it is so real and raw and emotional. I can't tell you how many times I was at work reading this book I I work at an incoming call center so in between calls I would read this book and end up <laughs> crying like oh, literally <laughs> crying over these stories um, I love it. and just yes and just the world um, I mean your writing is just so thought-provoking and convicting um, and we'll tell all of our listeners where to find it too at the end of the show so they can also have their lives wrecked um, <laughs> by this. Uh, but I want to read this paragraph from um, chapter 18, which is called Better Homes and Gardens. And you write, when we open our lives to those from whom we used to keep a safe distance, it changes everything. Our well-being becomes mashed up with that of our neighbors. And this shifts how we think about our homes, our times, our money, and our, our ideas about everything from personal responsibility to success. Loving people at close range unveils all we haven't known, the stuff we've gotten wrong for a long time or maybe forever. Uncomfortable as this can feel, it is exactly what God intended. God uses the people near us to do surgery on our hearts and turn them toward the things that capture his. There should be no segment of life left unscathed by the scalpel of the gospel. The death of self is marked with scars. Um, wow, there are a couple of phrases in there that I want to talk about. Um, the first one being this idea of loving people at close range.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, what has been uh, the most impactful or, or maybe the most surprising um, thing you have learned by loving people at close range?
2: I mean, I think hands down, I'm trying to find a, like a, I wish I had like a happier answer for you. But I think the thing that, that has surprised me the most is that it's just really painful sometimes. Um, I don't, Mm -hmm. I feel a little emotional by what you just read. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) So I'm I'm trying to like not get weepy right now, but I just, it you know, it, I think that's even just hearing you read back those words, like it just reminds me that, you know, when we kind of, when we moved into this life of living as neighbors and especially, you know, I mentioned earlier, my husband is the chaplain of the jail. A lot of our, our friends and a lot of our neighbors, you know, they're, they're rebuilding after incarceration. They're, they're fighting their way out of addiction. Um, they're trapped in cycles of poverty. I mean, it just goes on and on. And these are things that I never, I never concerned myself with prior to, you know, this Goshen era of my life. I just, I of course knew that those things happened. Um, I would have said certainly that I had compassion for people struggling in different ways, but you know. theory and, and practicality are two very different things. And so at the point that our, our everyday life became kind of tangled up with actual humans who we actually love, who are struggling, I mean, I was just, I wasn't necessarily prepared for the, the heartache that, that comes with that. Um, and so the flip side of that is to to give some good news, you know, I also wasn't prepared for um, the joy that it would bring our life. And, you know, you sit at close range, you sit at close range to suffering, but you're also at close range for redemption. And we see redemption happen and we see it in small ways. And we see, um, you know, we see a lot of like the two steps forward and then two steps back sort of thing but but man, we've been able to just be right here up close for some really amazing, um, just you know, experiencing God and seeing God and seeing his image in the faces around us. I mean, that's been a really beautiful experience. And so you end up with both. And I think that's, and so I write a good bit about that. You know, this is kind of the, it's the bittersweet and it's the, The salted chocolate, you know, is one of the chapters I wrote about. But it's, yeah, it's hard and it's just really, really good.
1: Yeah. Um, I like that you um, talk about how it's hard and good. And you're right. I mean, when we get the suffering, when we sit close to that, we do get the redemption and, and that's not to say, you know, bad things happen, bad things have to happen in order for us to experience good. Um, but it definitely does, um, sweeten things a little bit, I think, yeah. um, uh, it, to know that we're going to sit near to hard and heartbreaking things. Um, but we're also going to see God working in that. Um, right. And that is so good. Um, yeah, I, I like that. Um, the other piece of this passage that I love um, is the last little bit. There should be no segment of life left unscathed by the scalpel of the gospel. Mm-hmm. The death of self is marked by scars. Um, flesh that out a little bit for us if you would, um, what is the scalpel of the gospel?
2: I mean, I think the, I think the gospel itself is meant to disrupt our lives. It is meant to, to change our affections and it's meant to, um, to change us, you know, at a, at a really base level. And, and so I think for so many years, you know, I grew up doing all of the Christian things. And, you know, I did a WANA. I was a Bible quizzer. I went to a Christian college. I was very familiar with the Bible. But I but I was not, and I knew, you know, I knew up in my brain that the Bible was um, was a tool for transforming or to use a very churchy word like sanctifying our lives, I didn't. I, that that kind of head knowledge never translated to or traveled through the rest of my body. You know, so I didn't. I didn't quite understand that the the Bible is supposed to orient our lives. It's supposed to put our bodies in in places of suffering and pain. Um, it's It's supposed to mean something about what our our hands and our feet and our you know what we're the words we're saying and the ways that we're listening and the ways that we're seeing it's supposed to be really embodied um but but that transformation is going to it's gonna hurt so I mean I think you know i I chuckle a little bit because that's very intense wording that I used and I can be a pretty intense person sometimes. Um, it, it's intense to refer to that scalpel, but I just think, you know, this is if, if we're expecting the gospel to not um, kind of carve us up a little bit and really, you know, cut parts of us out, you know, to really cut away at our selfishness and our greed and our our self involvement if we're not expecting the the gospel to do that then we're not expecting enough um we're just we're not we're not placing it in a position of power that it deserves over our life and so it it's but it's hard you know it hurts it hurts to kind of lose to lose those things along the way and it's painful to realize the pain that i've cost people without even realizing it. And it, you know, it's hard to contend with my selfishness all the time. Um, it's just, it's just going to hurt along the way. And I think that's sort of the point.
1: Yeah. Um, well, if that doesn't inspire, um, all of our listeners to go get your book, I, I don't (laughs) know what will, (laughs) um, as we wrap up our conversation here, um, I'd love to bring our attention back to the focus of this podcast, which is making room on the pew for the misfits and the outcasts. Mm -hmm. And I'd love, oh, thank you. Um, (laughs) I'd love for you uh, to talk a little bit about a group of people, um, or maybe a couple of groups of people who you feel are the misfits and outcasts of the modern American church. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: It's so, I mean, I, I love, I love the way you phrase that. And I use that word a lot myself. Um, We kind of, you know, we have, we have this running Monday night Bible study now that, you know, I said in the beginning, you know, we didn't come here to start a Bible study, but a couple of years into it, that's one of the things that sort of happened. And that Bible study group, we call ourselves the Misfits And, and so in, in a lot of ways, like if I'm, if I'm really going to talk about misfits, I'm not going to be able to, to define that without including myself in that group, because I, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in many ways, especially as our, as our hearts and our minds have changed about certain things, we, we identify with people who feel like they don't quite fit in to church in particular. Um, So, you know, the the misfit thing for me is is like i'm i'm right there on the pew (laughs) um but i think you know that that monday night bible study and our church you know our church i write a, a good bit about it in the in the book um we we have we have surrounded ourselves and we have been surrounded by people who are coming out of incarceration and so we have we have people who um fall under that category with us on monday nights and in our church our little tiny church that was at the on the verge of death you know it was just it was we at any moment we felt like they were going to just come in and, and shut the doors forever it was it was you know resurrected quite honestly through a small group of people that started attending from the work release center in our neighborhood which is kind of like jail only you can go to church and you can go to work. And so you know okay. a, hand, a handful of people started arriving and then they invited their girlfriends and then they invited their you know the, then their kids came and then they invited their friends from work and then I mean at this point now our church is is over half people from work release. And so these are people who um a lot of them are very tattooed a lot of them are struggling through addiction a lot of them are you know just just not necessarily visually the type of person that you might expect to be sitting in church with you know sharing that we we attend a fairly traditional church and so we do actually sit in pews so you know sharing <laughs> that pew with with your brother or your sister who is still technically incarcerated. I mean, those I would say are the misfits that that I identify with. Those are the ones who I love. Um, those are the ones who I fight for. Those are the ones who deserve. Um, they really, they they do their time and they pay their debts. And there's a lot of stuff we could even say about all of that. I've got a lot of bones to pick with our with our criminal justice system, but we don't have time for that today. But, you know, they've, they've paid their they've paid their debts to society. And, you know, we see this with our son, Robert, and with just any number of people in our lives. It's just, there's just not, it's not fair that, you know, you you do what you're supposed to do, and you can never really, you can never really remove that label. And so, that's become kind of a just a passion of mine to fight on behalf of of the people who really deserve a second chance they really do that's that's what our system is supposed to be providing you know you you do what you've got to do and then you get to kind of start over but we see all the time how that starting over is not really it's not really what society wants from them so I would say you know those are the those are the first group of misfits that are closest to my heart but then I also think of You know, I I especially think of our Misfit Bible study and just the people who have gathered there. It's such a quirky, such a quirky group of people, very just, we're just regular people. You know, we're just, we're, um, we have different opinions and ideas and, you know, we ask questions and, you know, some of us, we have a very like, some are single, some are divorced, some are married, some have kids, some don't, some have been in jail, some haven't, some are immigrants, some aren't. I mean, it's just across the board, we've got a really eclectic group of people. And I think anytime you can gather just kind of a, a, a surprising, weird, and I always use the word weird in a really positive way, you know, just gather up the strangest brew of people that you can find. And you're going to, you're going to become a pretty misfit group just by virtue of the fact that you don't have everything in common. And I think that's where things get really interesting quickly.
1: Yeah. You know, I I like that you um, included yourself in that um, because that's really how this started. Um, This podcast started as well as because I Um, I have an interesting, uh, relationship with the church as an institution. Um, and so this is how this started is me trying to like wrangle a spot in church for myself where I feel that I sit. Um, so I love that you added yourself in there. Um, and I love that you talked about, um, people who are incarcerated, um, I, I agree with you, um, or people who are coming out of incarceration, um, I totally agree with you. We do not make church accessible, right. um, I think in my experience, um, to that population of people, um, and that's such a detriment to the church. Um, yes. I was talking to, yeah, I, I was talking to, uh, Amanda Carpenter the other day and she said, um, if we, if the church isn't everybody, it's not church, or it's not what church, right. what I thought church could be. Um, and I, I totally um, agree with that. Yeah. Here is that if we don't include everyone, it's not the church. And that, um, that does include people who are incarcerated or people who have been incarcerated. Right. Um, I'm wondering if you have any ideas. And it, it sounds like you may, um, or maybe your church is just really great at, at welcoming people in. But, um, I'm wondering if you have any ideas about how to collectively welcome into the church as a whole, or at least make church more accessible um, to people who are incarcerated or who are coming out of incarceration. Mm
2: -hmm. I, I do have a lot of thoughts about that. And I think, I think the first, you know, that's when we landed at this church, when we first, it's right smack dab, it's two blocks from my house, it's right in my neighborhood. And when we realized, you know, in our second week in town that that was going to be our our church, I mean, it was, it was maybe 50 people, 60 people, I don't know, on a Sunday, most of them were 75 or older, I mean, vast majority, Um, there was no programming. I mean, no kids program, no youth program, no extra Bible studies, or I mean, it was just really bare bones. Like even the, the sound system was pretty terrible. (laughs) So I, I I look now and I'm always amazed that a lot of these older folks, you know, they've been, this has been their church home literally forever and they're in their eighties now. And I know that you know, they're looking around at, there's a huge gathering of people outside our, our main doors every Sunday morning, sucking down their last cigarette before they walk into church. And, you know, there, there's some commotion on a Sunday morning, people kind of wandering in and out and maybe leaving to smoke or maybe just leaving to go to the bathroom because for once in their week, they have the freedom to move about. Um, you know, so there's just, there, there are different aspects that I always think, you know, certain people in my church, like this is not what they signed up for. This is not how they envisioned this church, you know, in the final, um, kind of stage of their life. This isn't what they pictured it to look like, but these people have embraced it. They have welcomed the, the men and women from the Workerly Center with open arms. They have learned their names They have, you know, we have a greeting time every Sunday and they hug them and they coo over their babies. And I mean, it's just, it's just such a beautiful thing. And I, I'm really convinced. And I know there are people that could convince me otherwise, and that's okay. I think there's something very disarming about a church that is just very basic. You know, we just, we're not that polished. We don't have anything produced we're not a very slick church we 're not a very cool church um, we you know our music a lot of people would would say is like eh, you know we don't have a worship band we just it's it's all very cobbled together it's all very um, anybody who wants to be a part we we would like you to be a part and we need you to be a part um, and i I think that that humility of you know, of really knowing in our full hearts, because it's just—it's impossible to not know. You know, we need help here, and we're not so—we're not so awesome. Um, we're just—we're just ordinary people doing our ordinary best, and we're coming together week after week, and we're we're praying together, and we're sitting together, and you know, this is this is the heart of church. We're here to grow in Christ together. And that's where the bar kind of is and i think that's really um that is accessible to people who who are not used to being welcomed into church spaces and a lot of the a lot of the people a lot of these men and women have mentioned that along the way you know they've mentioned the ways they've been hurt by the church or the ways they've been excluded by the church or the ways they've been judged you know just by their appearance by the church. And so to, to give them a, a new perspective um, is, is just my favorite thing. I just love my church. It's very imperfect. And, you know, there, we still have the, the church drama from time to time that I think every church deals with. And, you know, there are conflicts of opinion and all of those things are still there. We are not a perfect place, but, you know, we just keep showing up. We just keep showing up and we keep welcoming anyone who shows up with us.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I think um I'm gonna have to make a trip to Goshen just to go to your church. Um
2: you should. You're invited anytime. Saint Mark's United Methodist.
1: (laughs) All right. Oh my gosh, I grew up United Methodist, so you've already got me. There you go. (laughs) Um okay, so uh we're gonna wrap up here, but before we go, tell our listeners where they can connect with you and where
2: they can find um your books. Um, anything else you want them to know about you? Yeah, sure. Um, so my book, Ministry of Ordinary Places, is available on Amazon or anywhere, really, that you buy books. And you can find me, my blog or my website is Shannon, and it's Shannon with an A at the end, so shannonmartinwrites.com. There's a little pop-up that's gonna, that you'll find if you head over there, and you can sign up there to receive my newsletters in your inbox like an email that I send out once a month that's really probably the best way to to stay connected with me um and then aside from that I'm super accessible on social media my two loves are Instagram and Twitter um and I am at Shannon Wrights on both of those places and I just you know I love them for different reasons and I'm I'm on both of them every day and then I am also on Facebook maybe not quite to the extent that I'm in other places but I'm very easy to find
1: Great. Um, yeah. And everyone should absolutely sign up for that newsletter. Um, for all of our listeners, it is not just another thing in your inbox. It actually has um, some really great content. Um, all right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your heart. Um, I really appreciate your wisdom and I know all of our listeners are really gonna, um, love what you have to say today.
0: Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Shannon today. I literally had goosebumps for over half of it, so I know it was good. I hope it impacted you as deeply as it did me. Like Shannon mentioned, you can find her on shannonmartinwrites.com or on Instagram and Twitter at shannonwrites. So go follow her, you will not be disappointed, and of course, grab a copy of her new book, The Ministry of Ordinary Places: Waking Up to God's Goodness Around You. Just Google it, it is everywhere. Okay, friends, one last thing here before I sign off. If this podcast is encouraging you or positively impacting you in any way, please take a few seconds to hit that subscribe button and leave a review. That really helps new listeners find this content. And if it is good for you, I hope it will be good for others who find us along the way. Of course, you can always connect with me as well on my website, Baileyjoewelch.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Bailey Joe Welch. Now, once you get there, either to my website or my Instagram or Twitter page, you will notice that it does say Bailey Welch Pomerantz because I did just get married in November. But I am going to go ahead and leave the handles in the actual web address as Bailey Joe Welch so you guys can find me a little bit easier. All right, guys, I'll see you next week.